Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about secular visions of divinity. The rocks and stones themselves will start to sing. Happy Palm Sunday to uh, those who celebrate it, and hopefully you're not hearing too much of the rainstorm going on in the background. To observe Palm Sunday this year, I want to talk about something that I've got a great deal of passion about, and that is um, secular visions of divinity. The way that the message of God gets through in things that we otherwise would not consider to be you know, intentionally Christian or theistic or holy in any way, that... Uh, the message gets through from nature. It gets through any time in the artistic and creative process. And it's not that hard to identify, although I'm certain that it quite often goes completely unnoticed. Another thing that came to me completely unnoticed was the fact that I appear to be right in the middle of three consecutive different drummers who are musicians and performers at the same time and who all have a very strong uh, message to give when it comes to secular visions of divinity. Um, not unintentional in the case of these three artists, like some of the artists I'll talk about today where it is probably genuinely unintentional, but also not central to who they are. We, we're not going to view these performers, the different drummers from the last week and next week and this week as uh, contemporary Christian performers in any way. And in fact, none of the artists that I'm going to drop uh, references to or share lyrics from have any um, contemporary Christian reputation to speak of. That's intentional. It's important for me to be able to get the message out that these things come through uh, even without having the blessing of the church or a Christian record label. So a couple of things I want to do first. I'm going to quote some scripture. It won't be long scripture. In fact, it'll be scripture that you might be able to sing along to if you're a big fan of Andrew Lloyd Webber. And then I'm going to make a quick reference to a film, because I think by making a movie reference, I can do a better job of kind of framing what I mean by secular visions of divinity or unintentional references to key Christian and Judeo-Christian concepts. And then I'm going to dive right in with several specific references to music and lyrics, and that's pretty much going to be the focus of the show today. So first, uh, before I jump into a, to a passage from Luke's Gospel with Jesus speaking with Pharisees, you might think of the same Palm Sunday moment from the Hosanna song and the Hosanna sequence in the Andrew Lloyd Webber play Jesus Christ Superstar. And it actually fits very well with my topic today because his lyricist for that particular play, Tim Rice, is an excellent example of somebody who tends to get theology pretty close to right, but comes from a distinctly non-Christian uh, perspective. Uh, he's not evangelizing in any way, shape, or form. And if anything, his personal life reflects a rejection of a lot of the concepts that he nevertheless captured accurately in the song Hosanna, where Jesus answers the Pharisees telling him to silence the crowd by singing, why waste your breath moaning at the crowd? Nothing can be done to stop the shouting. If every voice were still, the noise would still continue. The rocks and stones themselves would start to sing. Hosanna. Hey, Zanna, Zanna. So let me first then go back to Luke chapter 19 and share this from a word-for-word -word biblical trans translation. So let me go to Luke chapter 19 and begin with verse 37, just a short passage. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones themselves will cry out. That's Luke 19, verses 37 to 40 in the New American Standard translation. As David is often quoted as doing in the Psalms in the Old Testament, the notion is that creation itself sings, or in my way of looking at it, the artistic process itself will share the glory of whether you want to call that the glory of nature or the glory of God, pick your perspective. But there's no doubt that at a certain point inside the creative process, something takes over. And uh, we, we call that inspiration. We call that muse. We call that lots of things. But oftentimes it is in that moment where things which you wouldn't otherwise think of as religious or that you might not initially think of as religious do creep in. 
The example I'd like to use from film is the movie Stranger Than Fiction. I've recently watched this again, been toying with the idea that it might be my favorite movie of 2006. And that's saying something, because 2006 is a pretty incredible year in filmmaking, with foreign films like Pan's Labyrinth and The Lives of Others, with other unique films, including what I would call as the, the better of the bunch, After the Wedding. But Stranger Than Fiction, I like because of this connection to the way secular and uh, Christian concepts merge together. At its face, uh, Stranger Than Fiction is a comedy drama with certain um, kind of notions that you might otherwise have seen in movies like Adaptation or um, Being John Malkovich or Ghost, where there is sort of a supernatural quality. And in this case, Will Ferrell, being less Will Ferrell than at any other point in his career, in my opinion, more subdued, more of an actor than a comic, plays a man who, leading a very mundane life, suddenly begins hearing the narrator of what actually is his story and decides he has to take action when the narrator that he is hearing predicts his own death. And, of course, being the narrator, an accurate, omniscient narrator, uh, sure, certainly knows what she's talking about. And as you work through the comedy, romance blends into it. It never loses sort of the metaphysical construct. So it's entertaining throughout, dramatic because there is a life and death element at play. And funny enough that it's really hard to categorize. It's not a religious film at all. It's not really a comedy per se. The comedy itself is very, very dry. And it's only dramatic to the extent that you buy into the content, which, of course, I did. One of the struggles in talking about films from the perspective of this secular connection to the divine is that it's almost impossible to do this without spoiling. So uh, with lyrics, I think it's much easier because even if you do spoil a subtext to a song, it's a three minute, four minute, five minute commitment for the for the person. So I'm going to try to explain why I connect so strongly with Stranger Than Fiction without giving too much away, leaving what happens uh, very much up in the air. But the, the central moment is when the character finally meets face-to-face -face with the author. You know this is coming. It's not that big of a spoiler that at some point there's going to be a confrontation or a conversation between the two. And what um, the main character ultimately leaves the author deciding to do is, now that I've met this person, now that I realize my character is a real, living, breathing human being and not just somebody that I've made up, can I follow through with the tragic story arc that I've built and kill him off at the end in an incredibly dramatic and moving way? Or do I have to decide to take another course? And if I decide to take another course, in what way does that invalidate everything that I've written on the previous 400 pages of text? And that's sort of the struggle. The end result of the conversation she has with the character is that he decides that, you know, for the good of her art, that she might want to follow through and finish her story tragically as she has planned, that he's going to die someday anyway, and he might as well die in a brilliant and artistic way, as opposed to whatever the fates may allow for him. And then she begins to struggle with the idea of, do you really kill off somebody who knows that he's going to be sacrificed and is willing to do it? That it's one thing to kill off a character that you've never really met, and that doesn't know that they're about to face some sort of you know horrible fate. But when the person that you're writing knows they're facing a horrible fate, totally has escaped, broken through what we might call the fourth wall of fiction, and knows who you are as an author, what do you do then? And she almost gets close to quoting scripture by talking about someone who lays down his life for another is truly a friend. And if you watch Stranger Than Fiction and have any understanding of John's gospel, particularly you know, chapters uh, 14 and 13, 14 and beyond, it really does resonate in a clear way that she's actually wrestling as an author, as an omniscient godlike being, in this case, a very faulty omniscient being, still dealing with that question of how do you handle this question of sacrifice? And we talk about, well, substitutionary atonement is just a Christian concept. It's not real. It's not valid. You see it every time you turn a corner. Every time somebody volunteers to be a kidney donor or a bone marrow donor for a complete stranger, what is that if not an act of substitutionary atonement on the smallest scale? Of course, we're not talking about death and resurrection here. But when you're talking about giving up a kidney but healing enough to have a fully functioning normal life, you are giving a piece of your life to somebody else. And we see this on a daily basis more often than we know. The Pollyanna Cowgirl Records Podcast. So it's like... Someone saying I love you to you once a week. Tony Pucci specifically. 
Tony Pucci specifically. Hi, this is Tony Pucci of the Pollyanna Cowgirl Records Podcast. I'd like to invite you to join me each week as I play one hour of pod-safe pop and rock music. You can find the show at pollyannacowgirl.com or at the host podcast network site, simplysyndicated.com. Peace and love. Of course, we don't just see this in the movies. We hear it in music, and those who pay good attention to lyrics, and I'm one of those people who really enjoys a good lyric, we see it more often than others do, perhaps. So I want to just kind of share with you some song lyrics that I feel come from secular bands, secular bands who aren't often being positive toward religion or Christianity in particular, but that's okay. They're talking about it. They're discussing it at the water cooler. It reminds me of a column I wrote, in fact, for the newspapers back when I was working kind of in the editorial board kind of role for a daily newspaper. During the conflict over The Last Temptation of Christ, the film uh, by Martin Scorsese didn't come to my local community, so we didn't have to write anything from a feature perspective. We didn't have to interview the local theater about uh, their decision to show the film and whether there was conflict they were managing and how they how they were planning to deal with crowd control issues or complaints. We didn't have any of that. But I did choose to speak to the issue on a national scale from a couple perspectives. One was the fact that our local library had a copy of the original book that was fairly faithfully presented on screen. So it couldn't be that the movie was controversial and unacceptable to show in our local area when the book was on the shelf that whole time. And the other thing that I wanted to point out, at least to Christians, what I wanted to point out was that anything that gets two people at the water cooler together talking about Jesus Christ can't possibly be a bad thing. And even if blasphemy is part of the road, part of the paving of that road, you still need to walk down that road, no matter what went into it to build it for you. So some of the lyrics I'm going to share are incredibly negative. Some of the lyrics I'm going to share are uh, maybe surprisingly positive and uplifting. But I don't judge the artist for their for their vision, because I think that there is, again, something inherent in creating an artistic piece of work, something inherent in presenting a clear and well-stated, passionate point of view that is in and of itself divine. So my very favorite, to get us started, is Indigo Girls. I'm going to share two by them, in fact. In fact I'm going to have a couple of their, uh, that I start off with, presenting multiple songs, because the groups have done a good job of pr- portraying kind of a conversation around these issues over time. And Indigo Girls is one. The um, first one I want to share is my favorite track by them from the Rites of Passage CD called Let It Be Me. And then I'm going to share a song from their very first, well, not their first, but their self-titled major label debut. From Let It Be Me, it goes something like this. I've seen the kingdoms fall like ashes and the winds of change, but the power of truth is the fuel for the flame. So the darker the ages get, there's a stronger beacon yet. Let it be me. This is not a fighting song. This is not a wrong for a wrong. Let it be me. If the world is night, shine my life like a light. I can't think of a more powerful message. Tying directly back, actually, to the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus talking about a a city on a hill can't be hidden, and that no one would light a lamp in their home and then cover it up with a bowl, that we need to be light in a very dark world. And the darker the times get, the more important that light is. In their very uh, first Sony album, Indigo Girls have a song called Prince of Darkness, where they talk about just how dark the times can get. And a song that has incredibly, uh, for me, incredibly powerful moments of both negativity and of hope. Um, from the negative side, uh, the line that always resonates with me most is, uh, the dreams came in like needy children tugging at my sleeve. I said I have no way of feeding you, so leave. And uh, the chorus includes someone's on the telephone, desperate in his pain. Someone's on the bathroom floor doing her cocaine. Someone's got his finger on the button in some room. No one can convince me we aren't gluttons for our doom. But I tried to make this place my place. And I asked for Providence to smile on me with his sweet face. And I tell you, my place is of the sun and this place is of the dark, and I don't feel the romance, and I don't feel the spark, but by grace my sight grows stronger, and I will not be a pawn for the Prince of Darkness any longer. You know, when you listen to the song, when I was listening to the song when it came out in 1989 in the record stores in the American Midwest, what I got was a lot of looks saying, you know what, you probably shouldn't be playing a song in the store where people were talking about doing drugs. That was what the predominantly Christian customer base heard when Prince of Darkness was playing on the stereo while people were shopping. That's not what I heard as a Christian. What I heard as a Christian was things Paul said about trying to be in the world, but not of it. 
I heard things that Jesus taught about us trying to be that light on the hill, trying to make a difference, being of the sun and not of the dark. Now, I've read the lyrics. That's S-U-N, sunshine, that they're referring to here. But it doesn't have to be if you don't choose to listen to it in a distinctly secular way. There's another band that got me trouble in the stores, Crash Test Dummies. Now, and there may be some people out there who cringe a little bit that maybe they find the group to be an alternative rock cliche and they don't like them. I respect that point of view. To be honest with you, I've got two of their albums, meaning that I own The Ghost That Haunt Me and God Shuffled His Feet. And most of my experience with the band is pinned right on God Shuffle His Feet. I didn't uh, enjoy the albums that came later. So as they came into my music collection, they then drifted right back out again because they didn't, they didn't work for me. And I didn't pursue anything else on the fringes of that either. But those two albums have stuck around and really primarily because of a couple of songs in particular. From The Ghost That Haunt Me, a track called At My Funeral, raises uh, this point. If I can, I'd like to meet my maker. There's one or two things I'd sure like to ask. And then in the very next album, the self-titled track, God Shuffles His Feet, they talk about those questions. And I'm going to kind of wander through the lyrics of this one quickly, but maybe more comprehensively than I have so far. It's a farcical retelling of the first few chapters of Genesis, and God has taken people he's made, gathered them together in a picnic, and they're having a seventh-day restful celebration. And the people, what with God there, ask him questions, like, do you have to eat or get your hair cut in heaven? Or if your eye got poked out in this life, would it be waiting up in heaven with your wife? And I got trouble in the store because, again, the very conservative customer base that I was dealing with in that part of the country didn't like the idea that the song portrayed God as being unwilling to answer. God shuffled his feet and stared right back at them. He doesn't say anything for a while. But when he does say something, what a lot of people interpreted as sarcasm, I interpreted it as being a very humorous but also profound response. God said once there was a boy who woke up with blue hair. To him, it was a joy, until he ran out into the warm air, and he thought of how his friends would come to see, and would they laugh or think he had some strange disease. Well, this answer doesn't work for the people. And God shuffles his feet for a while, and the people stare at him for a while, and finally someone says, you know what, God, I'm not quite sure about what you just spoke. Was that a parable or a very subtle joke? Now, in my mind, Again, not even remotely a sacrilegious question. The kinds of questions we ought to be asking ourselves, because you know what? A very good parable could very easily be mistaken or substituted for a very subtle joke. So the kind of questions that crash test dummies ask, I view as positive, but some people see them as inappropriate because they're raising a question from a secular perspective about something that otherwise might be considered holy. Roger Waters, I would describe as being less positive, and he's got an entire career going all the way back through his Pink Floyd lyrics of asking these kinds of questions in subtle and sneaky ways. The final cut has a track where uh, the, uh, the, the main character, from a young boy's perspective, asking uh, the question, tell me true, tell me why was Jesus crucified? Is it for this that daddy died? Was it for you? Was it for me that I watched too much TV? That sort of thing. But what I want to share from Roger Waters is actually a trio of songs from his Amused to Death album and a quote from each one of the three movements of a three-part song called What God Wants. And just very quickly, don't be so surprised. It's only dogma, the alien prophet cried. United spiritually in all possible ways through the power of money and the power of your prayers. What God wants, God gets. God help us all. He picks up a stone that looks like a bone and the bullets fly and the rivers run dry. I would not describe uh, Roger Waters as having a positive perspective, but he is still raising questions, um, questions that I think kind of cut to the heart of the, the whole debate between uh, Calvinists and Methodists, the, uh, the uh, Arminian versus uh, predestination kind of conversation. What does it mean to say what God wants, God gets? What does it mean? to go too far in what I would consider to be too far in the Calvinist direction and determine that your choices are unimportant, that God is responsible for everything. It's a good question to ask, even if I disagree with the way the question is usually answered by the non-Christian world. Speaking of the non-Christian world, there's Jethro Tull. Outright challenging, not necessarily positive at all, but again, I appreciate a well-written, well-made argument, even if I don't agree with the place from which the argument comes. 
Jethro Tull's 1971 album Aqualung might be the best example of what I'm talking about in all of the quotes that I'm going to share. It is a full-on attack on things that the lead singer, and perhaps the whole band, felt were the hypocrisy of the Christianity that they had been offered by the world. Everything from the album cover art, with a set of agnostic scriptures on the back, if you've gotten really the right version of the original album cover art, to particularly the second half of the album, because the album is divided up into two sides, one side telling an Aqualung story, essentially a, a homeless man with issues, and the other side called My God. But in this case, it's My God with a lot of complaints. The title track of that second side of the Aqualung album, My God, says, People what have you done? Locked him in his golden cage. Make him bend to your religion. Him resurrected from the grave. He is the God of nothing. That's all that you can see. You are the God of everything. He's inside you and me. So lean upon him gently and don't call on him to save you from your social graces and the sins you're used to waving. The bloody Church of England and chains of history request your earthly presence at the vicarage for tea. Now, those are some very accusing words directed at, again, what the band would have considered to be a hypocritical church. Follows up on the very next track called Hymn 43 with the chorus, If Jesus saves, well, he'd better save himself from the gory glory seekers who use his name in death. Now, it would be easy to take on this this diatribe, this full-on attack against Christianity. And even if I agree with him, that the people he's calling hypocrites probably are hypocrites, and the things that he would like to see reformed probably need to be reformed. But it would be very hard to take if it was just that. But the, uh, the album ends, the album side and the album itself ends, with the song Wind Up, which is absolutely one of my favorite Jethro Tull songs. It's ironic that Jethro Tull and back-to-back album releases put out Benefit and Aqualung, because... How do you handle that as a man when there's fans like me who see everything you've done for 40 years as being somehow less than that? Good, maybe good enough, maybe even really good, but less than that. Where somewhere in your first three or four albums, you hit a peak you haven't reached again. But it's hard for me to look at it from any other way when I hear the words to the song wind up. And, you know, even the musical presentation with a nice crescendo and decrescendo built right into the middle of it. The song peaks in a really good way. When I was young, and they packed me off to school, and they taught me how not to play the game. I didn't mind if they groomed me for success, or if they said that I was just a fool. So I left there in the morning, with their God tucked underneath my arm, their half-assed smiles, and the book of rules. And I asked this God a question, and by way of firm reply, he said, I'm not the kind to have you wind up on Sundays. So to my old headmaster... And to anyone who cares, before I'm through, I'd like to say my prayers. I don't believe you. You had the whole damned thing all wrong. He's not the kind to have you wind up on Sunday. Don't spend all those years playing Dungeons and Dragons and not learn a little something about courage. It's <laughs> awesome. I'm Jen. And I'm Angela. And we're the socially functional co-hosts of Anomaly, the podcast with a unique perspective, a female perspective on all things geek. Star Trek, Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Buffy, Firefly, gaming, books, costuming, and general geek topics. The sometimes monthly, but always entertaining Anomaly Podcast. Anomalypodcast.com. Not to be so Christian centric, there's a couple of artists I'd like to dive into quickly here where the message is not from an artist who's Christian. Now, at the time that Cat Stevens was writing some of the most interesting folk rock music of, of the 1970s, I don't believe that he was either Christian nor non-Christian. He certainly wasn't Muslim back then. But you can see from the questions that he was asking that he wasn't getting the answers that he needed. And, of course, now we would not describe him as a Christian artist. I think retrospectively that's tricky. Um, you have to ask, well, where was he at the time that he wrote the songs? But the two I'd like to mention, one is Longer Boats from the T for the Tillerman album with the line, I don't want no God on my lawn just a flower I can help along. 
again, tying back into that question of omnipotence and the relationship and whether everything's predetermined or not. For the very next album, Teaser and the Fire Cat, uh, Tuesday's Dead might be my second favorite Cat Stevens song behind the very angsty, romantic uh, song, How Can I Tell You? But Tuesday's Dead has this, this point to make. If I make a mark in time, I can't say the mark is mine. I'm only the underline of the word. And to me, that's kind of a litmus test that we could use for Christians. Anytime a Christian um, believes that there's credit that should be conferred to themselves, or that an idea should be identified as their own, or that they've got, they have the way, as opposed to Jesus having the way, this is a, a good point that Cat Stevens raises. We need to be listening to people who understand that they are the underline of the word. They aren't the word themselves. They're not making a mark in time. They may only be highlighting it or sharing it with others. The other one is the band Yes. Uh, yes, always uh, a little bit mystical in their approach. And my favorite album by Yes has the distinction of being rated on a, a, a book I still have on the shelf, a book I enjoy reading just for the comedy value of the worst rock and roll albums of all time. Yes isn't number one. They're number two on there for the album Tales from Topographic Oceans, which is a two-CD set of a rock symphonic suite, literally one song broken up into four movements, something like 80, 80 or more minutes long. So this is Yes at their overbloated, overblown best, and an album that, that really tries to recreate, quote, and deal with the, the philosophical concepts of, of the Eastern mystic Yogananda. So nothing directly Christian in any of this writings. They're taking, you know, totally from a Far Eastern perspective when they created Tales from Topographic Oceans. One of the things that amuses me about that Yes album being rated, quote-unquote, so highly on this worst albums of all times list is that the album that technically they've got as their number one really isn't a music album. It doesn't have songs. It's more of a spoken word release for one of a better way of describing it. But let me toss out a few quotes from Yes to just to demonstrate that things don't have to be Christian or even theistic to qualify for this secular visions notion. I'm going to quote very freely from the first movement. What happened to this song we once knew so well? Signed promise for moments caught within the spell. We must have waited all our lives for this moment. Moment. Past, present, movers, moments will process the future. But only to touch him we know. Send flowered rainbows that chase flowers of dark and lights of songs to you. Show all we feel and know of. Cast round. Youth is the truth accepting that reasons will relive and breathe in hope and chase in love for you and you and you. In the second movement, uh, has this line, relayer, all the passion spent on one cross. Interesting. And my favorite lyrically of the movements actually has the fewest lyrics in it. If you look at the lyric sheet on the back, there's not that many words in the third movement, but it does include this line. Where does reason stop and killing just take over? Does a lamb cry out before we shoot it dead? Are there many more in comfort understanding? Is the movement in the head? And I heard a million voices singing, acting through stories that they had heard about. Does one child know the secret and can say it? Or does it all come out along without you? In the final movement, it considers the, this concept. As we try and consider, we receive all we venture to give. So there's undoubtedly something going on there. And it, funny for an 80-minute 80, 80 song, you really only get moments here and there where the lyrical wisdom has an opportunity to peek out over all the surface artifice and all the, you know, all the self-indulgence. But that's yes, right? I mean, take us in a distinctly country direction. Again, not just sticking with rock and roll music, not just sticking with people with distinctly Christian worldview, but I will jump back into Christianity for this first one. Exine Cervanka. Now, you may not think of her as country, and it may be more fair to call her country or folk, or country folk more than rock and roll. But on her album, Running Sacred, an intentional pun, she finishes that off with this uh, song called Will Jesus Wash the Bloodstains from Your Hands? And lines like, I saw a gray-haired mother crying softly in her door as she gazed upon the pathway that he'd return no more. She said, Lord, let me hold my baby just once more. And Lord, I hope we never live to see another war. Will Jesus wash the bloodstains from your hands? Will he welcome you into that peaceful land? Will he forgive the killing and the wars you have planned? Will Jesus wash the bloodstains from your hands? Now the bombs you've dropped and the guns you've shot all in the name of peace. Leave the people asking for mercy, but you give them no release. 
There's blood on your hands, mister, that you'll answer for one day, and the tears you shed on that day won't wash your sins away. This was written during the Reagan administration, uh, released during the Bush administration, and it's ironic how relevant it could actually be today. Coming from the you know, former lead singer of the American punk rock band X, who unmistakably is putting out folk rock albums during this time. I'm going to skip over another country artist, so if you feel like I've left somebody out, that might be on purpose. Um, last week's different drummer was uh, had secular visions of divinity in the song Jesus Was Way Cool. This week I'm going to deal with the first one I ever heard that clicked with me that a secular artist could have something profoundly religious to say. And next week I'm going to take us in a darker direction, if that's a hint as to what's to come. Now the next one for me is Lyle Lovett. Uh, Lyle Lovett is an artist who's always had a sense of humor. I find his voice to be an acquired taste. So my actual favorite recording of the song God Will, which Lyle put out on a self-titled album, I prefer Holly Cole, uh, who put it out on her um, album, Blame It On My Youth. Um, but it works whether a male or female is singing it. With the line, who keeps on loving you when you've been lying, saying things aren't what they seem? Well, God does, but I don't. And God will, but I won't. That's the difference between God and me. Perhaps just a relationship song, but unmistakably a relationship song that plays into the concepts that we have in our society, both inside the church and outside the church, of what it means to talk about the forgiveness of God. Finally, in country music, Travis Tritt released an album, T-R-O-U-B-L-E, his Trouble album, with a kind of a blues number called Lord Have Mercy on the Working Man. Is he taking the Lord's name in vain? I don't think so. If you listen to the song, uh, Lord is not just a four-letter word here. He's actually calling upon calling upon a savior all around. I hear the sound of money, but I ain't got a nickel to my name. And everywhere I go, I see temptation. She stands on every corner and calls my name. Well, won't you help me if you can? Cause it's so hard to understand. Why is the rich man busy dancing while the poor man pays the band? Lord, they're billing me for killing me. Lord have mercy on the working man, including later a line that says there's quick, there's quicksand all around and man, I'm in it. Please help me up, Lord, because I'm going down. This ties really directly to the Violent Femmes song uh, Gordon Gano wrote uh, with uh, Jesus walking on the water. The same imagery is used there. Let me round out this conversation about secular visions of divinity by including as many artists as I can, one track each, and perhaps going more quickly, because I think I've established kind of the groundwork of how this is. And I'm going to hit some songs that are perhaps uh, things that we might have heard on the radio, that many of them anyway. And perhaps heard them and didn't even notice. The Eagles had a, a best-selling album called Hotel California that was truly dealing with both heaven and hell uh, in lots of direct ways. The title track, which was a huge hit for them, truly a, a heaven and hell kind of a song, more on the hell side of the spectrum. But the album ends with a track called The Last Resort, which is one that I really like because it's still a criticism, a direct criticism of the way Americans did missionary work when we expanded westward, and it has a, a very moving and very convicting set of verses at the end. You can leave it all behind and sail to Lahaina, just like the missionaries did so many years ago. They even brought a neon sign, Jesus is coming, brought the white man's burden down, brought the white man's reign. Who will provide the grand design? What is yours and what is mine? Because there are no more new frontiers. We have got to make it here. We satisfy our endless needs and justify our bloody deeds in the name of destiny and in the name of God. And you can see them there on Sunday morning. They'll rise up and sing about what it's like up there. They call it paradise. I don't know why. You call someplace paradise and you kiss it goodbye. Just a song about American expansion into the West, into California and Hawaii? I don't think so. That's The Last Resort by uh, the Eagles. Eric Clapton's song that he mournfully wrote at the tragic death of his son has enough backstory that I won't tell it here. But just to quote Tears from Heaven, originally released at the soundtrack uh, to the movie Rush, Beyond the door, there's peace, I'm sure, and I know there'll be no more tears in heaven. The Talking Heads rose a view of heaven that's based on Aristotle's view of perfection. So a philosophical question from their Fear of Music album, the song just called Heaven, including the line, heaven is a place where nothing ever happens. The idea being that something's perfect doesn't change, which is both an accurate and perhaps a small-minded understanding of what perfection really is. 
Chris Isaac from his album Forever Blue, one of my favorite songs by him called I Believe. Again, a relationship song talking about the disillusion of a relationship and the main character exploring that. But in there, it has the line, I believe the angels listen, God hears us pray, and I believe in a beautiful day, but not for me and not for you. Al Stewart kind of brings us back to that that Roger Waters idea of asking God questions on his album Russians and Americans, a track called Accident on Third Street, dealing with the aftermath of a drunk driving death where a drunk driver uh, killed an innocent woman, uh, not in his car, just kind of hit a pedestrian or something and dealing with kind of the aftermath of how you deal with those types of tragedies. And he's quoting the pastor at the graveside service for Linda, the victim of the accident, and Alstert expressing some dissatisfaction in the theology that he hears there. He said it's God's to give and God's to take away. But why he happened to pick Linda on Saturday night, no one could say. The Moody Blues probably shouldn't be a surprising entry here. In fact, I'm almost cheating a little bit because Mike Pinder at the time was part of the Moody Blues, a secular rock band, uh, kind of an art rock, progressive rock band from well, they had their heyday in the 1970s, and the album Seven Sojourn, featuring the song Lost in a Lost World, was definitely written at a time when Mike Pender was one of the singers in a rock and roll band. Uh, nothing, nothing more, nothing less. He has since left the group, and um, a couple of albums later went on to a career where he is now, I believe, a contemporary Christian artist. But at the time he wrote Lost in a Lost World, collaborating with the other band members on, on the song selections for the album, um, he was, again part of the rock and roll structure at that time if you would listen to this album you would not know that he was soon to leave the group and branch off in a contemporary christian direction everywhere you go you see them searching everywhere you turn you feel the pain everyone is looking for the answer well look again come on my friend love will find them in the end come on my friend we have to bend on our knees and say a prayer have you forgotten we're all children Children from a family tree that's longer than a centipede and started long ago when you and I were only love. There is one previous different drummer that I will mention today. Having skipped over um, Gordon Gano of the Violent Femmes from the third episode, the very first different drummer I I named, in fact, because as a different drummer, he did an excellent job of creating secular visions of divinity. That was unmistakably the uh, inspiration in my mind for naming Gordon Gano first. And I've also just sort of skirted past John S. Hall last week's entry, but nevertheless, the author of, you know, tracks like Jesus was way cool. The one I will go back to a little bit is Todd Snyder and to my favorite Todd Snyder studio album songs for the daily planet. He has two tracks on there that in the midst of the rock and roll, the kind of rolling stone style music, some of the country songs, songs that actually country artists would remake and uh, unmistakable personal folk tracks and sort of blues rock numbers. He drops a couple of Christian songs in there, not with a lot of fanfare, not looking for credit, not looking for the album to be blessed by the church, um, but also not not uh, seeking out any backlash either. Essentially saying, making an album, this is who I am, this is what I'm like, I'm going to give you the full range, and included in that, a couple of Christian songs. One, the more overt of the two, is Somebody's Coming, uh, with lines like, Somebody's Coming. He's been here before. If you think you're out of chances, you got one more. Somebody's Coming, and he's going to change everything. But the one that I like the best of the two is a song called A Whole Lot More, or A Lot More, I guess is the name of the song. And uh, I may do a lot of the lyrics here just because, again, I think it conveys a good idea on a rock album that could have carried an explicit language sticker for some of the words that he uses in in tracks like uh, All Right Guy. And uh, for some of the kind of just the tough lyrical content about uh, child abuse and violence, the album, again, not trying to be all flowers and light and sunshine and hope. And even in a lot more, he's trying to offer some convicting words here. Some guys are looking for diamonds. Some guys just want to pay their bills. Some guys are climbing up mountains while others are digging for thrills. Some guys just want to win trophies. And some guys just want to get girls. And some guys swear they won't stop working till they own everything in the world. Well, good luck at the end of that rainbow. If you think that's what you're here for, then make no mistake about it, baby. I want a whole lot more. I want a whole lot more than treasures that I can store down here on earth. You price them any way you want to, because, buddy, I know what they're worth. Some guys want attention. Some guys want girls. And some guys just just dig kicking down doors. Some guys want everything in the whole wide world. But I want a whole lot more. 
That's Todd Snyder from Songs for the Daily Planet. And, you know, good enough way to end this segment, just dropping the references to divinity that I hear inside these secular songs all the time. Now, some of them because they're in my playlist, but I got 11,000 songs on my playlist, but also because you hear them in the radio, that your faith comes through whether you want it or not. Even faith you don't know you have can come through because the way we tell a story often has a lot to do with the basics of conflict, being about somebody doing something wrong and then making an atonement for it. That's a basic plot line. Or something tragic happened, but something good coming out of it. That's another basic plot line. And the first time I experienced any of this sort of pop music, top of the charts, top 40 stuff, having something profoundly religious to say is our different drummer this week, Ed Ames. I'm going to grant that it's possible that a lot of people never think of Ed Ames today. Who is he to us? Those who are of a certain age perhaps remember him as being Mingo, uh, Daniel Boone's friend on the Daniel Boone TV show that ran in the 1960s. Others, if they were lucky, maybe had a chance to see him on stage. Because after his uh, Ames Brothers band, the family's all-male quartet of pop singers in the 1950s version, the four freshmen kind of version of pop singing... After that career kind of ended late in the 1950s, he turned instead to acting. And what a blessing it would have been to have seen him on stage in something like South Pacific or The Crucible. So some may know him as an actor. Some may know him for no other way than being TV personality. Somebody who in the, in the 70s in particular, late 60s and 70s, would appear often on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and on other programs as himself. But to me, Ed Ames will always be a singer at the end of the day. And a lot of that is because of the album that my parents had in their album collection called uh, Who Will Answer. But before I get into Who Will Answer, I think I want to talk just a little bit about Ed Ames, kind of just provide a little biography. So those of you who have never heard of him before, because he's still alive today, but been out of the public spotlight for quite some time, in his 80s, um, was kind of a, a figure in my parents' generation instead. So who was Ed Ames first? Then we'll talk about who will answer. Ed Ames was born as uh, Edmund Dantes Urich in the middle of 1927, and he was born into poverty. He's described it this way on a biography that I saw on www.musicianguide.com. When I was 10, half the time was spent in hospitals being treated for starvation and malnutrition. I had horrible skin eruptions all over my body and rickets where the bones had not been developed. My mother would buy a loaf of black Russian bread where it was very coarse and tasty. She would take garlic and rub the crust, and that would be our dinner. We were constantly being evicted and put out on the streets and left to find another place to live. And this is describing his, his family life, his mother, his father, who came to America as immigrants in a family with 13, where 13 children were born. So Ed Ames... Uh, had early success with his four brothers as a very rare singing quartet where all the singers were male and all the singers were male with uh, baritone and um, bass vocals, not a tenor in the bunch. And most um, recording contracts were not going to be offered to a male singing group that didn't have a tenor, that the uh, prevailing wisdom of the time from the musicos was that you needed to have a high voice to balance out the low voices. The Ames brothers actually ended up having initial success instead in Harlem, getting work at what was in the, uh, all, the all-African-American Apollo Theater. They were the only Caucasian group that performed there. And after observing uh, African-American spiritual songs, they kind of learned some of that and added that into as a flavoring into their musical style. You know, after the group broke up, Ed Ames didn't sing for a couple of years, spent a couple of years learning acting, and frankly struggled for a while to make the transition there, too. He ended up getting a key role in The Crucible, and then later appearing in musicals, uh, the Fantastics, Carnival, which is kind of how he made his way to Broadway. To me, perhaps the pinnacle of his um, acting career on stage. It's something that I really, truly wish was available to see, that there'd been a film record of this. I'm unaware of one if there is. He got a break playing the uh, American Indian character in the stage version of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. So Ken Kesey's book, uh, playing opposite Kirk Douglas. So you got Kirk Douglas in what we now know from the movie as being the uh, Jack Nicholson role. But this is being staged in the 1960s, kind of in the middle of the 60s, early 60s even, when Jack Nicholson 
was at the time still cutting his teeth as an actor and making genuinely cutting-edge film work on the other side of the spectrum in the B-movie realm with Roger Corman. But on stage, you have this production of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest with Kirk Douglas and Ed Ames. And anyone who's seen the film or a staged version of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest kind of understands immediately that even though there's a tremendous amount of star power in the McMurphy role that uh, Kirk Douglas did here on stage or that Jack Nicholson frankly made famous in the film, the real key acting performance in the, in, in the story, if this story is going to work the way it should on stage, you've got to have a great performance from the almost completely silent Indian character um, that you know, works so well in the film and also apparently works so well on stage because Ed Ames, again, you know, an immigrant from Eastern Europe, somebody who just happened to have a dark enough complexion, perhaps because of the way um, he had to live the early formative parts of his life, or just because of just the natural tone of his skin, had never really played an American Indian before. But this role caught the eyes of people at 20th Century Fox, who then decided, yes, he could be the Native American friend of Daniel Boone in a television series that actually ran for four or five years. So the big break. And it was finding that level of comfortable success on TV that Ed Ames resumed his singing career. Some of the songs being nothing more than uh, him recording the Broadway hits that he was singing on stage, the songs like Some Enchanted Evening from South Pacific. You can imagine what he might do with his baritone voice with a song like Old Man River. Uh, I would not be surprised if those aren't the next two things that I that I buy online uh, in an MP3 because I don't have to buy. I'm not a big show tunes fan, so I'm very unlikely to just come out and buy an entire album full of show tunes. But those two in particular kind of intrigue me because I think that they would be a unique representation of things that Ed Ames did during the acting part of his career. But what I really want to talk about is the music. And I want to talk about an album in particular called Who Will Answer and the title track, Who Will Answer, Alleluia, number one. This album was in my parents' vinyl collection, and I can't emphasize enough how how impactful that was for me to have essentially free access to whatever was in my parents' music collection. I think probably the first reason I picked this up was because the song Massachusetts was familiar to me. It was on the album. This album had remakes, uh, Blowing in the Wind, Yesterday, Monday, Monday. Um, songs like that, but also had Massachusetts, which I had heard on, on a Bee Gees album from the same period. Now, for those of you who think of the Bee Gees and immediately jump to, to disco and soundtrack, they actually had a great deal of sort of folk rock flavor to them in the late 60s part of their career. And Massachusetts was probably my favorite song from the album that my parents had from the Bee Gees at that time. So from there, though, I migrated immediately to the title track, and I don't think I'd ever heard anything like it before. My parents had gospel albums, so I was used to the idea that if you put on an album that has the name Gaither on it, it's going to be really religious. <laughs> Not just a little religious, but really religious. But if you picked up an album from somewhere else in the collection, it probably wasn't going to be. That these two things in the late 1960s didn't mix all that well together. So I don't know whether I heard these at first in the 60s or the 70s, but I was very young. And at a very young age, I was immediately hit by the power of these words, some of which I didn't understand, but that clearly the lead singer was asking a rhetorical question about what God would do or what we would expect God to do in the song, Who Will Answer, where his vocal style sounds almost like Gregorian chant. Let's take a quick listen. Who will ask what led him to his private day of doom and who will I won't quote all the lyrics for the song written by Luis Eduardo Ayute and uh, Sheila Davis. Well worth tracking down and probably not so hard to track down online. If you think of these lyrics from being a late 60s perspective, kind of after the summer of love, during the Vietnam War, that sort of time frame, there's tremendous power. Neath the spreading mushroom tree, the world revolves in apathy, while overhead a roar of specks roars on, drowned out by discotheques. And if some secret button's pressed because one man has been outguessed, who will answer? Is our hope in walnut shells worn round the neck with temple bells or deep within some cloistered walls where hooded figures pray in halls of rumpled books on dusty shelves or in our stars or in ourselves? 
who will answer? If the soul is darkened by a fear it cannot name, if the mind is baffled when the rules don't fit the game, who will answer? Who will answer? Who will answer? In some strange way, the rhetorical question being sung by Ed Ames was for me an answer in and of itself. An answer to the question, is it okay for my pop singers to raise religious and theological issues in their songs? Is it okay for the church choral vocal and gospel groups to raise questions of the day, secular issues in their songs? The answer for me is a resounding yes. I'm hoping that uh, the next show that I release doesn't feel like an echo to this one. I'm going to hit uh, a similar kind of a topic, but more from a perspective of, of a scriptural basis. So I will in some ways unmistakably pick up with some echoes of this topic. I've got a different drummer next week who is also famous for having um, a mix of secular gospel and, and even more controversial songs in his catalog. But I'm going to look at it more from a from a different perspective and kind of share a story about what happened to me on an Easter Sunday in a worship service that almost led me to say, yes, I'm done here. If that's what the church is about, I'm out. But I'll save that idea for next week. For now, I'm going to keep my eyes just a little bit longer on the radio side of things, on the top 40 charts, on the albums that were originally recorded only to entertain. And yet somehow, in my mind, the Holy Spirit or the Lord himself or the artist willingly inserting things into those songs which provide a much bigger palette. As you know, if you've listened to any of the other inappropriate conversations, I don't think we need to keep these things separated. I think there's much more power in blending these things together and saying, this is what I believe. Maybe it harmonizes with Scripture. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it asks very accusing, angry questions toward Christianity. Or maybe it gives the church a free pass. Either way, we're better off if we put it all together. Thanks for listening.